Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. As a result of the great power rivalry between the US and China, many countries around the world feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. The governments of some nations, such as South Korea and Singapore, try their best to position themselves safely in the middle, avoiding confrontation with China, primarily for economic reasons, and at the same time, endeavoring to remain in America's good books. Until recently, Australia took a similarly balanced approach. China has been accused of bullying Australia since the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was critical of its actions at home and abroad. As a result, public sentiment towards China in Australia, which only a few years ago was overwhelmingly positive, has now turned negative. On the podcast today, we have the ideal guest to help us make sense of these political changes. He's Dr. Bates Gill, Professor of Asia-Pacific Security Studies at Macquarie University in Sydney, and a Senior Associate Fellow with the Royal United Services Institute here in London. Bates, welcome to China in Context. Thank you very much, Duncan. Five years ago, there was a lot of dialogue between Australia and China. President Xi, he said that the countries had different values. He said that they would differ on certain issues from time to time, but it looked as though all those differences could be dealt with in a constructive fashion. Now though, as we're going into the start of 2022, there's been no ministerial contact between China and Australia for more than a year. We've got sanctions on Australian wine, barley, beef and coal. Can you talk us through why these profound changes have occurred in the Australia-China relationship, please? Well, I think you can point to uh, several factors, and this is from the Australian perspective. I think the, the Chinese side would probably disagree with, with these points. But, but just to stick with the Australian side, I think the, the biggest factor in my interpretation was the increasing concern arising three to four or five years ago about Chinese political influence operations within, within Australia. Efforts underway through various conduits, uh, through various means to try and influence, cultivate, um, develop relationships with Australian politicians and other opinion shapers in ways that would uh, be more favorable to China. That's resulted in this uh, range of uh, anti-foreign interference legislation in Australia. But of course, there's also the external dimension. Um, there, there's serious concern in Australia about China's growing military footprint, activities in, in areas that Australia has always considered its strategic backyard, like, like the Western Pacific uh, or in Southeast Asia, uh, uh, expanding military footprint in the South China Sea, uh, and um, Australia's view that China is sort of um, ignoring international norms around the law of the sea, freedom of navigation, and the like. And you add it all together, and there has been this dramatic downturn in the public mood toward China. So several Australian export sectors have been affected by the diplomatic row with China. I mentioned coal, barley and beef. But even lobster exports to China were banned. What's been the overall impact on the Australian economy? And can you tell us how that's affecting the political debate about China? Well, quite remarkably, um, the economic impact of, of the 
sanctions or regulatory measures that China has taken against Australian uh, imports into China have actually not put a big dent into the overall trade relationship between China and Australia. Why? Well, I think the biggest reason you can sum up in two words, iron ore. It's the largest export by volume and price, which uh, Australia exports to China. And of course, it is not in that list. As a result, the uh, overall um, amount of trade between China and Australia has not declined. In fact, it's increased. That said, uh, there is no doubt that the business sector in Australia is deeply concerned about the direction that the relationship has taken diplomatically. But politically, the overwhelming negative attitude in Australia towards China over the past three to five years has meant that the business sector has to proceed quite cautiously. I want to share a recent quote from the Australian Defence Minister, Peter Dutton. He said that Australia needs to stand up to China or risk losing national sovereignty and become what he described as a tributary state. And Mr Dutton warned that if China invaded Taiwan, it would become the region's dominant power and then it would seek to target Japan's Senkaku Islands. Of course, those remarks were welcomed by several prominent politicians in Taiwan and Japan. But I'm interested to know why Mr Dutton chose to use such language. Could you explain that for us, please? Well, Mr. Dutton is known uh, as somewhat of a hawk. Um, I think you know he would have naturally been inclined to make those sorts of statements anyway, um, whether he were defense minister or not. But obviously, as defense minister, his words carry so much more weight. Um, but I think it's it's more broadly reflective of of the deteriorating mood which you identified earlier uh, in the in the in the podcast um, and. Politically speaking, there is almost no downside right now uh, you know, in the larger constellation of politics in Australia to be tough on China. Um, we are entering an election season. Uh, there will be an election early in 2022. Um, the Liberal National Coalition, that the coalition has always done well, positioning themselves as being tough on uh, national defense, uh, tough on China. Uh, it could be that there was some of that motivation in Mr. Dutton's remarks. But broadly speaking, this is where we are right now. Before China took those retaliatory measures against the Australian exporters, the Chinese government said that Australia had been siding with the US in an anti-China campaign. What did you make of that? Well, this would be, I think, pretty typical rhetoric coming from Beijing. The, the strategy in Beijing vis-a-vis -vis the United States and its alliances in the region uh, has always been, um, and we can date this back even to the 1950s and 60s, uh, to do what it could into these alliance relationships. And you know that's a perfectly understandable strategy if you were sitting in Beijing um, and wanting to you know, achieve your own interests in the face of this array of in some cases, quite powerful and close military alliances around its periphery. So that's, that doesn't surprise me. Beijing may believe, and I think there's some truth to it, 
that you know there are certainly um, quarters, maybe more than quarters, in Australia, uh, who have been skeptical, have been traditionally quite skeptical about the alliance with the United States, um, concerned about the degree to which that alliance has pulled Australia into all kinds of troubles and difficulties in the past. Um, you know, in, in their view, think Vietnam, uh, think Afghanistan, uh, and the list goes on. Um, and the argument being from those quarters, you know, let's not let America pull us into yet another major conflict um, that we don't really want to be into, especially considering that this is China, you know, our largest trading partner, an enormous regional and probably future global power to boot. I can understand that sentiment. And actually, I hear it expressed in other countries as well, yes, particularly, yes. in fact, in South Korea, where a lot of people wonder what the implications are of siding closely with the United States against China. Staying with the messages from America, though, um, there was a, an interesting remark from a key advisor to President Biden last year, Kurt Campbell. He said that China aims to drive Australia to its knees, but he said that China should realise that it would be hurting itself by doing so. I'll give you the quote from Mr Campbell. China's preference would have been to break Australia and then find a way forward. What did you make of that remark? Well, I know Kurt pretty well, and he uh, is a longtime um, a friend of Australia. He has always been a very strong advocate for the U.S. alliance system uh, and, and how we can be smarter in um, deploying it uh, to try and maintain American presence and uh, influence in the region. And he's, uh, I think, rather consistently been concerned about China's rise uh, and what needs to be done about it. So coming from him, I don't think it's a big surprise. Um, he may have been a bit over the top in suggesting that Australia is going to end up on its knees. Although, sure, China would, you know, Chinese leaders would certainly prefer in Australia that's um, uh, not beholden to the United States, not too tightly uh, allied to it, or even neutral. And of course, uh, even friendly towards China. Do they really expect that to happen? I don't think so. Well, as you said, Kurt Campbell's a leading advocate of the Australia-US alliance. Um, he was also one of the key figures in the formation of the AUKUS deal, which was a security partnership which also involves the United Kingdom, focusing on submarines, the projection of naval power. Now, it's clear that not everyone in Australia is a fan of AUKUS, I noticed that the former Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, has said that it could diminish Australia's strategic autonomy. And I believe that there's been similar criticisms voiced by the opposition Labour Party in Australia. Do you think there's a lack of political consensus on AUKUS, which could derail the project if there's a change of government, for example? It could easily happen. Um, and, and there are a lot of other, I would say, even more um, damning uh, problems uh, around AUKUS uh, that would, I think, also contribute to its possible uh, derailment. The, the centerpiece of it all, the promise or pledge that Australia will actually domestically produce 
nuclear submarines. I mean, this would be, I, I think, perhaps the greatest technological undertaking that this country has ever attempted. So that in itself, I think, means uh, enormous challenges that will not be easily overcome. Uh, that's not to say it won't happen. It's just that I think we all have to understand just how difficult this is going to be. There is not fundamental consensus around this. I think even uh, supporters of the liberal national coalition who, who might support them politically would also acknowledge um, that this is not going to be an easy thing to do. Or you could even argue, uh, even if the first nuclear submarine is in the water by 2035, uh, 2040, um, will time have simply, time and technology simply overtaken the entire operation? Um, we just don't know where military technology is going to be at that time. Uh, does it make sense to put you know, six or eight large platforms uh, which can be sunk relatively, relatively easily if, if discovered at the price tag of, say, 10 or 12 billion apiece. You know, it, does that make sense for warfare in the middle of the 21st century? And I think there are some very, very serious questions to be answered about that. So uh, it's not just the political consensus issue. I think people have legitimate concerns about this around other questions of warfare and strategy and the best way to spend you know, limited resources on national defense. Bates, thanks very much for raising those questions and indeed for your thoughtful analysis of these emotive but important issues. That's Dr. Bates Gill, Professor of Asia-Pacific Security Studies at Macquarie University in Sydney and a Senior Associate Fellow with the Royal United Services Institute in London. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.